The Truth About George by P.G. Woodhouse Two men were sitting in the bar parlor of the Angler's Rest as I entered it, and one of them, I gathered from his low, excited voice and wide gestures, was telling the other a story. I could hear nothing but an occasional biggest I ever saw in my life, and fully as large as that. But in such a place, it was not difficult to imagine the rest. And when the second man, catching my eye, winked at me with a sort of humorous misery, I smiled sympathetically back at him. The action had the effect of establishing a bond between us, and when the storyteller finished his tale and left, he came over to my table as if answering a formal invitation. Dreadful liars some men are, he said. Fishermen, I suggested, are traditionally careless of the truth. He wasn't a fisherman. That was our local doctor. He was telling me about his latest case of dropsy. Besides, you must not fall into the popular error about fishermen. Tradition has maligned them. I'm a fisherman myself, and I have never told a lie in my life. I could well believe it. He was a short, stout, comfortable man of middle age, and the thing that struck me first about him was the extraordinary childlike candor of his eyes. They were large and round and honest. I would have bought oil stock from him without a tremor. At that moment, the door leading into the white, dusty road opened, and a small man with rimless, pince-nez and an anxious expression shot in like a rabbit, and had consumed a gin and ginger beer almost before we knew he was there. Having thus refreshed himself, he stood looking at us, seemingly ill at ease. N-n-n-n-n, he said. We looked at him inquiringly. N-n-n-nice, his nerve appeared to fail him, and he vanished as abruptly as he had come. I think he was leading up to telling us that it was a nice day. It must be very embarrassing, I said, for a man with such a painful impediment in his speech to open conversation with strangers, probably trying to cure himself like my nephew George. Have I ever told you about my nephew George? I reminded him that we had only just met and that this was the first time I had learned that he had a nephew, George. Young George Mulliner, my name is Mulliner, I will tell you about George's case, in many ways a rather remarkable one. My nephew, George, was as nice a young fellow as you would ever wish to meet, but from childhood up he had been cursed with a terrible stammer. If he had had to earn his living, he would undoubtedly have found this affliction a great handicap. But fortunately, his father had left him a comfortable income, and George spent a not uncomfortable life residing in the village where he had been born and passing his days in the usual country sports and his evenings in doing crossword puzzles. By the time he was thirty, he knew more about Eli the prophet, Ra the sun god, and the bird emu than anybody else in the county except Susan Blake, the vicar's daughter who had also taken up the solving of crossword puzzles and was the first girl in Worcestershire to find out the meaning of steering and crepuscular. It was his association with Miss Blake that first turned George's thoughts to a serious endeavor to cure himself of his stammer. Naturally, with his hobby in common, the young people saw a great deal of one another, for George was always looking in at the vicarage to ask her if she knew a word of seven letters meaning appertaining to the profession of plumbing. And Susan was just as constant a caller at George's cozy little cottage, being frequently stumped, as girls will be, 
by words of eight letters signifying largely used in the manufacture of poppet valves. The consequence was that one evening, just after she had helped him out of a tight place with the word disestablishmentarianism, the boy suddenly awoke to the truth and realized that she was all the world to him, or as he put it to himself from force of habit, precious, beloved, darling, much loved, highly esteemed, or valued. And yet every time he tried to tell her so, he could get no farther than a sibilant gurgle, which was no more practical use than a hiccup. Something obviously had to be done, and George went to London to see a specialist. Ah, 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 I said George. You were saying? Woo, 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 woo. Sing it, said the specialist. Sss, said George, puzzled. The specialist explained. Many people who are unable to articulate clearly in ordinary speech find themselves lucid and bell-like when they burst into song. It seemed a good idea to George. He thought for a moment, then threw his head back, shut his eyes, and let it go in a musical baritone. I love a lassie, a bonnie, bonnie lassie. She's as pure as a lily in the dell. No doubt, said the specialist, wincing a little. She's as sweet as a heather, the bonnie purple heather. Susan, my Worcestershire blue bell. Ah, sounds a nice girl. Is this she? He asked, adjusting his glasses and peering at the photograph which George had extracted from the interior of the left side of his undervest. George nodded and drew in breath. Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, don't mean maybe. Yes, sir, that's my baby now. Quite, said the specialist hurriedly. He had a sensitive ear. Quite, quite. Quite exactly. I shouldn't wonder. And now, what precisely is the trouble? No, don't sing it. Write the particulars on this piece of paper. George did so. Hmm, said the specialist, examining the screed. You wish to woo court and become betrothed, engaged, affianced to this girl. But you find yourself unable, incapable, incompetent, impotent, and powerless. Every time you attempt it, your vocal cords fail, fall short, are insufficient, wanting, deficient, and go bluey. George nodded. A not unusual case. I have had to deal with this sort of thing before. The effect of love on the vocal cords of even a normally eloquent subject is frequently deleterious. As regards the habitual stammerer, tests have shown that in 97.569 recurring of cases, the divine passion reduces him to a condition where he sounds like a soda water siphon trying to recite Gunga Din. There is only one cure. Whoa, asked George. I will tell you. Stammering is mainly mental and is caused by shyness, which is caused by the inferiority complex, which in its turn is caused by suppressed desires or introverted inhibitions or something. The advice I give to all young men who come in here behaving like soda water siphons is to go out and make a point of a speaking to at least three perfect strangers every day. Engage these strangers in conversation, persevering no matter how priceless a chump you may feel, and before many weeks are out, you will find that the little daily dose has had its effect. Shyness will wear off, and with it the stammer. And having requested the young man in a voice of the clearest timber, free from all trace of impediment, to hand over a fee of five guineas, the specialist sent George out into the world. The more George thought about the advice he had been given, the less he liked it. He shivered in the cab that took him to the station to catch the train back to East Wobsley. 
Like all shy young men, he had never hitherto looked upon himself as shy, preferring to attribute his distaste for the society of his fellows to some subtle rareness of soul. But now that the thing had been put squarely to him, he was compelled to realize that in all essentials he was a perfect rabbit. The thought of accosting perfect strangers and forcing his conversation upon them sickened him. But no mulliner has ever shirked an unpleasant duty. As he reached the platform and strode along it to the train, his teeth were set, his eyes shone with an almost fanatical light of determination, and he intended, before his journey was over, to conduct three heart-to-heart chats if he had to sing every bar of them. The compartment into which he had made his way was empty at the moment. But just before the train started, a very large, fierce-looking man got in. George would have preferred somebody a little less formidable for his first subject. But he braced himself and bent forward, and as he did so, the man spoke. The wo 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 weather seems to be taking a turn for the better, doesn't it? George sank back, as if he had been hit between the eyes. The train had moved out of the dimness of the station by now, and the sun was shining brightly on the speaker, illuminating his knobbly shoulders, his craggy jaw, and above all the shockingly choleric look in his eyes. To reply, yes, to such a man would obviously be madness, but to abstain from speech did not seem to be much better as a policy. George's silence appeared to arouse this man's worst passions. His face had turned purple, and he glared painfully. I uh, uh, asked you, civil, are you deaf? All we Mulliners have been noted for our presence of mind. To open his mouth, point to his tonsils, and utter a strangled gurgle was with George the work of a moment. The tension relaxed, the man's annoyance abated. To get to East Wobsley, as you doubtless know, you have to change at Ippleton and take the branch line. By the time the train reached this junction, George's composure was somewhat restored. He deposited his belongings in a compartment of the East Wobsley train, which was waiting in a glued manner on the other side of the platform, and finding that it would not start for some ten minutes, decided to pass the time by strolling up and down in the pleasant air. It was a lovely afternoon. The sun was gilding the platform with its rays, and a gentle breeze blew from the west. A hail brook ran tinkling at the side of the road, Birds were singing in the hedgerows, and through the trees could be discerned dimly the noble facade of the county lunatic asylum. Soothed by his surroundings, George began to feel so refreshed that he regretted that in this wayside station there was no one present whom he could engage in talk. It was at this moment that the distinguished-looking stranger entered the platform. The newcomer was a man of imposing physique, Simply dressed in pajamas, brown boots, and a mackintosh, in his hand he carried a top hat, and into this he was dipping his fingers, taking them out, and then waving them in a curious manner to right and left. He nodded so affably to George that the latter, though a little surprised at the other's costume, decided to speak. After all, he reflected, clothes do not make the man, and judging from the other's smile, a warm heart appeared to beat beneath that orange and mauve striped pajama jacket. Nin and a nice, nice weather, George said. Glad you like it. I ordered it specially. 
George was a little puzzled by this remark, but he persevered. Might I ask w w what you are d doing? Doing? With that her, her, her hat? Oh, with his hat. I see what you mean. Just scattering largesse to the multitude. Devil of a bore, but it's expected of a man in my position. The fact is, he said, linking his arm in George's and speaking in a confidential undertone, I'm the emperor of Abyssinia. That's my palace over there, he said, pointing through the trees. Don't let it go any farther. It's not supposed to be generally known. It was with a rather sickly smile that George now endeavored to withdraw his arm from that of his companion, but the other would have none of this aloofness. He seemed to be in complete agreement with Shakespeare's dictum that a friend, when found, should be grappled to you with hoops of steel. He held George in a vice-like grip and drew him into a recess of the platform. He looked about him and seemed satisfied. We are alone at last, he said. This fact had already impressed itself with sickening clearness on the young man. There are few spots in the civilized world more deserted than the platform of a small country station. What George could have done with at the moment was a posse of police armed with stout clubs, and there was not even a dog in sight. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, said the stranger genially. Have you, said George? Yes, I want your opinion of human sacrifices. George said he didn't like them. Why not, asked the other, surprised. George said it was hard to explain. He just didn't. Well, I think you're wrong, said the emperor. I know there's a school of thought that holds your views, but I disapprove of it. I hate all this modern advanced thought. Human sacrifices have always been good enough for the emperors of Abyssinia, and they're good enough for me. Kindly step in here, if you please. He indicated the lamp and mop room at which they had now arrived. You, 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 go in first. No larks, said the other suspiciously. L -l 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 larks? Yes, no pushing a fellow in and locking the door and squirting water at him through the window. I've had that happen to me before. Sir, certainly not. Right, said the emperor. You're a gentleman, and I'm a gentleman, both gentlemen. Have you a knife, by the way? We shall need a knife. No, no, no knife. Ah, well, then we'll have to look about for something else. No doubt we shall manage somehow. And with a debonair manner, which so became him, he scattered another handful of largesse and walked into the lamp room. It was not the fact that he had given his word as a gentleman that kept George from locking the door. There's probably no family on earth more nicely scrupulous as regards keeping its promises than the Mulliners. But I am compelled to admit that had George been able to find the key, he would have locked the door without hesitation. Not being able to find the key, he had to be satisfied with banging it closed. This done, he leaped back and raced away down the platform. Covering the ground at a high rate of speed, he flung himself into the train and took refuge under the seat. There he remained quaking. At one time, he thought that his uncongenial acquaintance had got upon his track, for the door of the compartment opened, and a cool wind blew in upon him. Then, glancing along the floor, he perceived feminine ankles. The relief was enormous, but even in his relief, George, who was the soul of modesty, did not forget his manners. He closed his eyes. A voice spoke. Porter? Yes, ma'am? What was all that disturbance as I came into the station? 
Patient escaped from the asylum, ma'am. Good gracious. The voice would have undoubtedly spoken further, but at this moment the train began to move. There came the sound of a body descending upon a cushioned seat, and some little time later the rustling of a paper. George had never before traveled under the seat of a railway carriage, and, though he belonged to the younger generation, which is supposed to be so avid of new experiences, he had no desire to do so now. He decided to emerge, and, if possible, to emerge with a minimum of ostentation. Little as he knew of women, he was aware that as a sex, they are apt to be startled by the sight of men crawling out from under the seats of compartments. He began his maneuvers by poking out his head and surveying the terrain. All was well. The woman in her seat across the way was engrossed in her paper. Moving in a series of noiseless wriggles, George extricated himself from his hiding place and, with a twist which would have been impossible to a man not in the habit of doing Swedish exercises daily before breakfast, heaved himself onto the corner seat. The woman continued reading her paper. The events of the past quarter of an hour had tended rather to drive from George's mind the mission which he had undertaken on leaving the specialist's office. But now, having leisure for reflection, he realized that if he meant to complete his first day of the cure, he was allowing himself to run sadly behind schedule. Speak to three strangers, the specialist had told him, and up to the present he had spoken to only one. True, this one had been a pretty considerable stranger, and a less conscientious young man than George Mulliner might have considered himself justified in chalking him up on the scoreboard as one and a half or even two. But George had the dogged, honest Mulliner streak in him, and he refused to quibble. He nerved himself for action and cleared his throat. Ahem, said George. And having opened the ball, he smiled a winning smile and waited for his companion to make the next move. The move, which his companion made, was in an upwards direction, and measured from six to eight inches. She dropped her paper and regarded George with a pale-eyed horror. One pictures her a little in the position of Robinson Crusoe, when he saw the footprint in the sand. She had been convinced that she was completely alone, and lo, out of space, a voice had spoken to her. Her face worked, but she made no remark. George, on his side, was also feeling a little ill at ease. Women always increased his natural shyness. He never knew what to say to them. Then a happy thought struck him. He had just glanced at his watch and found the hour to be nearly 4.30. Women, he knew, loved a drop of tea at about this time, and fortunately there was in his suitcase a full thermos flask. Pardon me, but I wonder if you would care for a cup of tea, was what he wanted to say, but as so often happened with him when in the presence of the opposite sex, he could get no farther than a sort of sizzling sound, like a cockroach calling to its young. The woman continued to stare at him. Her eyes were now about the size of regulation standard golf balls, and her breathing suggested the last stages of asthma. And it was at this point that George, struggling for speech, had one of those inspirations which frequently came to Mulliner's. There flashed into his mind what the specialist had told him about singing. Say it with music. That was the thing to do. He delayed no longer. Tea for two, and two for tea, and me for you, and you for me. You will agree with me, I think, that no invitation could have been more happily put. But his companion was not responsive. 
With one last agonized look at him, she closed her eyes and sank back in her seat. Her lips had now turned a curious gray-blue color, and they were moving feebly. She reminded George, who, like myself, was a keen fisherman, of a newly gaffed salmon. The train was now approaching the dear old familiar East Wobsley country. He took his thermos out of the suitcase and, unscrewing the top, poured himself out a cup of tea. Then, placing the thermos on the seat, he drank. He looked across at his companion. Her eyes were still closed, and she uttered little sighing noises. Now, as you approach East Wobsley, the train, I must mention, has to pass over some points, and so violent is the sudden jerking that strong men have been known to spill their beer. George, forgetting this in his preoccupation, had placed the thermos only a few inches from the edge of the seat. The result was that as the train reached the points, the flask leaped like a live thing, dived to the floor, and exploded. Even George was distinctly upset by the sudden sharpness of the report. He blinked thrice in rapid succession. His heart tried to jump out of his mouth and loosened a front tooth. But on the woman opposite, the effect of the untoward occurrence was still more marked. With a single piercing shriek, she rose from her seat straight into the air like a rocketing pheasant, and having clutched the communication cord, fell back again. Impressive as her previous leap had been, she excelled it now by several inches. I do not know what the existing record for the sitting high jump is, but she undoubtedly lowered it. And if George had been a member of the Olympic Games Selection Committee, he would have signed this woman up immediately. It is a curious thing that very few people have ever either pulled a communication cord or seen one pulled. There is thus a widespread ignorance as to what precisely happens on such occasions. The procedure, George tells me, is as follows. First, there comes a grinding noise as the brakes are applied. Then the train stops. And finally, from every point of the compass, a seething mob of interested onlookers begins to appear. It was about a mile and a half from East Wobsley that the affair had taken place, and as far as the eye could reach, the countryside was totally devoid of humanity. A moment before, nothing had been visible but smiling cornfields and broad pasture lands. But now, from east, west, north, and south, running figures began to appear. We must remember that George, at the time, was in a somewhat overwrought frame of mind and a statement should, therefore, be accepted with caution. But he tells me that out of the middle of a single empty meadow, entirely devoid of cover, no fewer than 27 distinct rustics suddenly appeared, having undoubtedly shot up through the ground. The rails, which had been completely unoccupied, were now thronged with so dense a crowd of navvies that it seemed to George absurd to pretend that there was any unemployment in England. Every member of the laboring classes throughout the country was so palpably present. Moreover, the train, which at Ippleton had seemed sparsely occupied, was disgorging passengers from every door. It is difficult to say what precisely would have been the correct behavior of your polished man of the world in such a situation. To George, I may say at once, the crisis revealed itself immediately as one which he was totally incapable of handling. The one dear thought that stood out from the welter of his emotions was the reflection that it was advisable to remove himself and to do so without delay. 
Drawing a deep breath, he shot swiftly off the mark. All we Mulliners have been athletes, and George, when at the university, had been noted for his speed of foot. He ran now as he had never run before. His statement, however, that as he sprinted across the first field, he distinctly saw a rabbit shoot an envious glance at him as he passed and shrug its shoulders hopelessly, I am inclined to discount. George, as I have said before, was a little overexcited. Nevertheless, it is not to be questioned that he made good going, and he had need to, for after the first instant of surprise, which had enabled him to secure a lead, the whole mob was pouring across country after him, and dimly as he ran he could hear voices in the throng informally discussing the advisability of lynching him. Moreover, the field through which he was running, a moment before a bare expanse of green, was now black with figures, headed by a man with a beard, who carried a pitchfork. George swerved sharply to the right, casting a swift glance over his shoulder at his pursuers. He disliked them all, but especially the man with a pitchfork. It is impossible for one who was not an eyewitness to say how long the chase continued, and how much ground was covered by the interested parties. But the pleasantest of functions must end, and just as the setting sun was gilding the spire of the ivory-covered church of St. Barnabas the Resilient, a damp and bedraggled figure might have been observed, crawling painfully along the high street of East Swabsley, in the direction of the cozy little cottage known to its builder as Chatsworth, and to the village tradesmen as Mulliners. It was George, home from the hunting field. Slowly, George Mulliner made his way to the familiar door, and passing through it, flung himself into his favorite chair. But a moment later, a more imperious need than the desire to rest forced itself upon his attention. Rising stiffly, he tottered to the kitchen and mixed himself a revivifying whiskey and soda. Then, refilling his glass, he returned to the sitting room to find that it was no longer empty. A slim, fair girl, tastefully attired in tailor-made tweeds, was leaning over the desk on which he kept his dictionary of English synonyms. She looked up as he entered, startled. Why, Mr. Mulliner, what has been happening? Your clothes are torn, rent, ragged, tattered, and your hair is all disheveled, untrimmed, hanging loose or negligently at loose ends. George smiled a wan smile. You are right, and what is more, I'm suffering from extreme fatigue, weariness, lassitude, exhaustion, prostration, and languor. The girl gazed at him, a divine pity in her soft eyes. I'm so sorry, so very sorry, grieved, distressed, afflicted, pained, mortified, dejected, and upset. George took her hand. Her sweet sympathy had effected the cure for which he had been seeking so long, coming on top of the violent emotions through which he had been passing all day. It seemed to work on him like some healing spell, charm, or incantation. Suddenly, in a flash, he realized that he was no longer a stammerer. Had he wished at that moment to say, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, he could have done it without a second thought but he had better things to say than that. Miss Blake, Susan, Susie, he took her other hand in his. His voice rang out clear and unimpeded. It seemed to him incredible that he had ever yammered at this girl like an overheated steam radiator. 
It cannot have escaped your notice that I have long entertained toward you sentiments warmer and deeper than those of ordinary friendship. It is love, Susan, that has been animating my bosom. Love, first a tiny seed, has burgeoned in my heart till blazing into flame. It has swept away on the crest of its wave my diffidence, my doubt, my fears, and my foreboding. And now, like the topmost topaz of some ancient tower, it cries to all the world in a voice of thunder, You are mine, my mate, predestined to me since time first began. As the star guides the mariner, when battered by boiling billows, he hies him home to the haven of hope and happiness, so do you gleam upon me along life's rough road and seem to say, Have courage, George, I am here. Susan, I am not an eloquent man. I cannot speak fluently as I could wish. But these simple words which you have just heard come from the heart, from the unspotted heart of an English gentleman. Susan, I love you. Will you be my wife, married woman, matron, spouse, helpmeet, consort, partner, or better half? Oh, George, yes, yea, ay, I, decidedly, unquestionably, indubitably, incontrovertibly, and past all dispute. He folded her into his arms, and as he did so, there came from the street outside faintly, as from a distance, the sound of feet and voices. George leaped to the window, rounding the corner, just by the cow and wheelbarrow public house, was the man with a pitchfork, and behind him followed a vast crowd. My darling, said George, for purely personal and private reasons, into which I need not enter, I must now leave you. Will you join me later? I will follow you to the ends of the earth, replied Susan passionately. It will not be necessary, said George. I am only going down to the coal cellar. I shall spend the next half hour or so there. If anybody calls and asks for me, perhaps you would not mind telling them that I am out. I will, I will, said Susan. And George, by the way, what I really came here for was to ask you if you knew a word of nine letters, ending in a K, and signifying an implement employed in the pursuit of agriculture. Pitchfork, sweetheart, said George, but you may take it from me, as one who knows, that agriculture isn't the only thing it is used in pursuit of. And since that day, concluded Mr. Mulliner, George, believe me or believe me not, has not had the slightest trace of an impediment in his speech. He is now the chosen orator at all political rallies for miles around, and so offensively self-confident has his manner become that only last Friday he had his eye blacked by a hay, corn, and feed merchant of the name of Stubbs. It just shows you, doesn't it? <laughs>